The Rare Patient Advocacy Summit is the can't-miss event of the year for rare disease stakeholders. The summit is the largest gathering of rare disease patients, advocates, and thought leaders worldwide. Join Global Genes October 3rd and 4th at the Hotel Irvine in Irvine, California, to take advantage of this opportunity to connect and learn from more than 100 experts in rare disease. For more information or to register, go to www.globalgenes.org forward slash 2018 summit. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. When Mary Beth Campbell's son Calvin was diagnosed with Bloon syndrome, a rare genetic disease that can lead to the development of cancer, she found a patient community that had mobilized in fits and starts. There had been efforts to create a patient registry and collect biosamples, but it wasn't consistently maintained. There was no natural history study of the disease, no animal model for it, no validated target for drug development, and no strong patient community. We spoke to Campbell about her efforts to catalyze the Bloom syndrome community around a research agenda, how they look to other rare disease communities to gauge their weaknesses, and how they prioritized what needed to be done. Mary Beth, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk with you. We're going to talk about creating a roadmap for a rare disease, how to best do that, and how to implement it. Let's start with Bloom syndrome, though, which your son Calvin was diagnosed as having. What is Bloom syndrome? How rare is it? How does it manifest and progress? And, and how is it treated today? Yeah, so Bloom syndrome uh, is extremely rare, even by the standards of rare diseases. Um, it was first reported by a dermatologist in New York City in the 1950s as a possible syndrome. Uh, since that time, so over a period of roughly 70 years, less than 300 cases have been reported. Um, now, I should say that it is likely underdiagnosed, and as DNA sequencing is becoming more widely available, the frequency of reported cases is, is increasing. Uh, but even with that, it's still a very rare condition. Um, in terms of manifestation, uh, a person with Bloom syndrome usually presents with four hallmark signs. Uh, the first is proportionate small size, which begins in utero and actually persists throughout life. Um, so most people, that's the first sign that they have Bloom syndrome. I know for Calvin, he was diagnosed with uh, IUGR, intrauterine growth restriction. Um, and persons with Bloom syndrome are typically off the chart small, um, diagnosed failure to thrive as infants and toddlers. And adults with Bloom syndrome typically are shorter than five feet. Um, a second sign is um, a facial rash that's caused by the sun. Uh, hence the discovery of the syndrome by a dermatologist. But I think it's important to note that not all individuals with Bloom syndrome have this rash. Um, I know our son didn't, and so as a community, we like to stress to clinicians that the lack of a rash itself should not mean that uh, Bloom syndrome should be ruled out. Um, the third symptom is a mild to moderate immunodeficiency, which can manifest as recurrent infection. So 
especially in, in childhood. Uh, and the fourth and most troubling manifestation um, is that people with Bloom syndrome are at a greatly increased risk of developing cancers of, of all types. Uh, these cancers develop at ages much younger than is seen in the normal population. Um, in fact, most persons with Bloom syndrome die from these cancers or complications related to cancer, and the average age of death is 26 years old. So you can imagine as, as a parent how hard it is to, uh, to see that figure when your child is diagnosed and to say it out loud. Um, so it's something that we're working to change. In terms of treatment, unfortunately, today there is no treatment, and our understanding of how to treat syndrome cancers is really quite poor. So we have a lot of work to do. The reason why these patients are at particular risk for cancers is because the mutation involved in Bloom syndrome is a gene that maintains the integrity of DNA. That's right. Yeah. It, it also means that traditional therapeutic regimens needed to take that into account if a cancer does develop and you are treating the patient with traditional chemotherapeutic agents. In, in terms of monitoring patients and treating them if cancers arise, how important is a precision medicine approach to treating cancers in patients with Bloom syndrome? It's critically important. It's really not an exaggeration to say that if an oncologist uh, treats a Bloom syndrome cancer patient with the same uh, treatment protocol that they would for a normal cancer patient, even if they're to adjust that for size and weight, uh, that they will tell that person. Um, as you said, um, people with Bloom syndrome lack this helicase that's involved in DNA repair. And so precision medicine for, for us is not a nice to have. It's really a matter of life and death. Um, the good news is that I think that the field of oncology is beginning to recognize the importance uh, and value of using the underlying genetics of a person and the genetics of their tumor in selecting treatment. Um, the bad news is that we don't yet have enough information on cancer treatment protocols used successfully in Bloom syndrome cancer patients, nor do we have information on tumors, uh, genetic information on tumors, to know if there's an Achilles heel, so to speak, for Bloom syndrome cancer. When your son was diagnosed, how well-established a patient community was there, and how did you become involved in broader issues around Bloom syndrome? Uh, so Calvin was diagnosed in January of 2016 when he was about 20 months old. And at the time, the community was pretty fragmented, and my involvement, my husband's involvement, really arose out of us trying to get more information. So when Calvin was diagnosed, we had contacted the syndrome registry to try to enroll, but the contact information on the website was uh, out of date, and we never heard back. There were several websites related to Bloom Syndrome organization. Some were clearly outdated, and others, it was really hard to tell how much activity was going on. Um, so, you know, my husband and I are both uh, PhD physicists, but knew close to nothing about biology. Uh, so we really just wanted to dive in and understand as much as we could about the disease from a scientific and med medical perspective, uh, and there really just wasn't a lot of information out there. So, like all parents, we wanted to know how we could give Calvin uh, a long, happy, and healthy life. Uh, so we tried to set out to compile the information that was out there and to do a need assessment of sorts um, that really led us to where we are today. Well, in, in April, you co-authored a Cold Spring Harbor molecular case study on Bloom syndrome research and data priorities for the development of precision medicines as identified by some affected families. I saw that you had raised money through the crowdfunding platform Consano for to fund this effort, which was called a, a nano course to, to lay the foundations for this. What was the thinking, and how did this come about? 
Yeah, so I think, uh, first of all, a, a nano course, the nano course is just kind of a fancy term for a, a, a workshop or a boot camp. Um, so I said in a general sense that our involvement arose out of trying to get more information, but more specifically what led us to holding the nano course uh, was a case of serendipity. We had found a paper from 1999 that looked at growth, cart, growth charts of children with Crohn's syndrome, and we wanted to know if we could get the underlying plots as the figures were really hard to read, a 20-year-old paper. Um, so we emailed the author, who was an oncologist named Charles Keller, and he said, unfortunately, the data were on hard disk drives that really weren't readable uh, anymore, but um, that since the time that he had authored that paper, he had founded a nonprofit called the Children's Cancer Therapy Development Institute, or CCTDI, and one of the things that CCTDI does is put on these nano courses to try to get patient communities engaged in the drug discovery process. Um, so Charles uh, had, when he was a practicing oncologist, had successfully treated a Bloom syndrome cancer patient, um, and so had always been interested in, in Bloom syndrome and thought that there needed to be new therapies developed uh, to treat Bloom syndrome cancers. So he asked if we were interested in co-organizing a nano course around Bloom syndrome, and we thought it was a great idea. Um, and he put us in touch with Cusano, uh, uh, created by Molly Lindquist, who, were, who herself is a cancer survivor. So we put together a, a page on Confano. Within two weeks, we had reached our, our crowdfunding goal of uh, $25,000 to pay for speakers and, and families to come and attend the event. Um, and since this is probably the last podcast I'll ever be on, I'd like to take the opportunity to thank everyone who, who contributed to that uh, effort. Well, the roadmap you helped create has three main components, establishing protocols for cancer surveillance and treatment, building the components of a successful rare disease community, and identifying research questions of most interest to the Bloom syndrome community. I think the, the first part may be kind of unique to Bloom syndrome, but the other two areas and issues that any organization focused on a specific rare disease would need to think through. One of the things you did was look at some components of successful rare disease communities and Compare that to the state of the Bloom syndrome community. What did you learn through that exercise? We learned a lot. Um, I'll mention just a few points. Um, one, and I think the first first point is that rare disease patient communities are doing really amazing work, and we were so so inspired by what others have been able to accomplish, um, and it really served to motiv motivate us in our work uh, during that week at, in the Nano Course. Um, and the second is that. You know, once we were able to identify these common features of successful rare disease communities, it gave us in the room um, a shared framework and language to openly talk about where we were as a community in a sort of sober and clear-eyed fashion. Uh, in, in some respects, I think by looking out first and saying, here's where we want to be, uh, we were able to then take a look at ourselves and say, here's where we are today, uh, without it being sort of critical or judgmental, but just a reality and a starting point for us uh, growing to where we want to be. Uh, and that was really useful. And I, and I should say, you know, that first part may be less broadly applicable, but we also did look at other cancer predisposition syndromes, uh, and those communities have had better outcomes by following uh, cancer screening guidelines. People are thinking of the Fraunini syndrome and the Toronto protocol. So but even there, we did learn from other rare disease uh, communities, uh, but we wanted to pull that out as a separate component just because it's such a, a pressing concern for us. Even as rare disease communities go, Bloom's syndrome is a, a very small one. I 
think it's also different from many other rare diseases in that it may not be present in the daily life of a patient the same way many other rare diseases are. How do those issues affect your ability to engage patients? Uh, it definitely does, um, and, I, and I think it's true that it may not be as present as, as in other conditions, but, you know, there are other issues besides cancer um, that do affect patients' well-being. Uh, as I mentioned, many are immunodeficient, have recurrent infections, some require um, IgG therapy. Fertility is affected, uh, either subfertility or infertility. Diabetes is more common and, and presents at an earlier age, um, and you know, as a mom, I can tell you that not a day goes by that I don't think about that 26-year-old average age of death statistic. So every leg pain, every fever, you know, my husband and I think, is this it? Is this cancer? Um, and my perspective is that patients in our community haven't been engaged uh, because they didn't get answers before. They haven't felt empowered. And so it seemed somewhat pointless. Sort of just, well, I guess we'll wait until cancer develops and we'll deal with it then. Um, but the landscape for rare disease has changed. Uh, the role of patient groups has, has become much more powerful, um, and cancer treatments are changing. So my hope is that as we're able to make progress, uh, more families and patients will get engaged. Well, you, you find yourself in the situation where there's a, a registry and a, a biorepositories that have kind of gone through fits and starts. There's no natural history disease study. There's no animal model for the disease. No validated target, and no strong patient community or, or researchers focused on doing translational research, and no dedicated funding source. How do you prioritize and mobilize these essential components? It's a challenge, for sure, but I think the nice thing about the roadmap is that we have an outline of what we need. Uh, now we're working on filling in each piece with more details on specific needs and how we're going to tackle them. Um, for prioritization, I think it's going to be a mix of focusing on those pieces that are the underlying infrastructure, uh, like you mentioned, you know, getting a sustainable registry and biorepository, um, and building up that trust and communication with the patient community, um, as well as being opportunistic when we find researchers or funding sources that are well aligned with us and our goals. Um, so, for example, uh, I mentioned that we don't have uh, genetic information on the existing tumor samples that, it, that we have. And that's something that's relatively low cost and is information that we know we're going to need to have at some point. Um, but we may be able to get that information through partnering with cancer sisters with disability. And so if an opportunity presents itself, we may take it up um, while we continue to work on the uh, underlying infrastructural issues uh, and making sure that those are um, getting built up so that they're ready to take advantage of when the effort produced a, a compelling list of areas for inquiry ranging from fundamental questions about Bloom syndrome to a, a range of potential therapeutic approaches worth exploring. How do you go about prioritizing those? Yeah, so we're in the process of uh, establishing a scientific advisory board, and one of the board's charges will be to oversee a more detailed research agenda. Uh, our goal with the research agenda in the paper was really to just highlight the questions that we as a patient community see as the important ones to answer, and we recognize that some may be easier to address than others in terms of the actual research that needs to be performed, um, but we don't want to lose sight of the ultimate goal, um, which we laid out in the paper, which is to ultimately improve the long lives of people with syndrome. 
So what progress have you made to date? So we held a workshop uh, last August. Um, and since that time, we wrote and published the roadmap paper. Um, we also wrote a handbook for patients and fami families to summarize what is known in, in a format and a language that is easy to read and understand. Uh, basically, we created what we would have wanted to find when Calvin got his diagnosis. Um, because as a parent, you get the diagnosis, you're in a state of shock, and you're really in no position to be reading medical journal articles and trying to read through the jargon and, and get the essential uh, information. So we're really happy with the handbook. Uh, we want it to grow over time and, and have more input from other uh, other families and patients. Um, and this past month, the Bloom Syndrome Association and the Bloom Syndrome Registry put on a Bloom Syndrome-specific conference. It was the first time that there was a Bloom-specific conference in 10 years, um, and it brought together the largest gathering of uh, syndrome patients and families ever. So it was really fantastic to see all the toddlers, the kids, the young adults, and the adults. Um, it's really inspiring. So with that, you know, now we're setting out on, on the uh, scientific advisory board, as I mentioned, and setting out that research agenda in more detail. Yeah, I think it's worth noting that in your professional life, you're involved in collaborations between academia and industry. You're the director of corporate partnerships at Caltech. As someone working to build collaborations between patients, academia, and industry, I'm wondering what you've learned from your professional experience that's informed what you're doing as a patient advocate. Yeah, I mean, I think I've learned a lot, um, but if I had to choose a single lesson, I think um, in many times our success depends on, on our ability to partner with others. So if you look at Caltech, for example, we're the fourth largest higher education institute in Pasadena, so not in Los Angeles, but Pasadena itself. Um, and yet we're consistently ranked one of the top universities in the world. And one of the reasons we're able to do this is we multiply our impact by partnering with others, whether that's the Jet Propulsion Laboratory that we operate for NASA or other academic institutions in operating like LIGO, which discovered gravitational waves, or our partnerships with industry in the private sector um, in creating startups or bringing industry's research challenges to our faculty and students. Um, you know, what? no one person and no single institution can tackle ambitious seemingly impossible problems, and so we have to come together collectively to work on them. Uh, and when we do, um, amazing things can happen. So um, I, th I take a lot of inspiration from my work, my professional work, to uh, the work that we're doing for them. Well, what advice would you offer others seeking to build a roadmap for a rare disease? What's the best way to get started, and, and what tips would you offer that may prevent them from wasting time? Yeah, I would say, you know, to steal from Eisenhower, the plan itself may end up being useless, but the planning is essential. Um, and I would say that probably every rare disease community should take some, um, do some work to, to build a roadmap. Uh, too often our rare disease communities are made to feel even rarer because of a lack of common vision and people end up rowing in different directions. Um, different organizations within a rare disease community can have different responsibilities, but most of our communities are too small um, and that we need to be partnering if we want to make any progress. Uh, I would put a plug in for Global Genes. They're a fantastic resource uh, and they've seen lots of different organizations and can help actually get people together and talk about these things. Um, and in terms of not wasting time, I, I would say put in the time up front to build trust and you'll be more efficient down the road. Um, we, we all see our kids' faces and, and know we've only got so much time, so we need to make it Mary Beth Campbell, Bloom Syndrome Patient Advocate. If 
If you'd like to meet Barry Beth and learn more about her work, join Global Genes for its 2018 Rare Patient Summit, October 3rd and 4th in Irvine, California. You can find more information on the Global Genes website. Mary Beth, thanks for your time today. Thanks so much, Danny. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.